morning, everyone. It's good to see you, to be with you. Um, it is good, indeed, to praise God with one voice. We don't need all these speakers. We just need all our voices. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you, musicians, for leading us this morning and for welcoming, being our lead welcomers of the Spirit and lead responders. Um, my name is Nelson. If I didn't say that already, I actually honestly don't even remember if I did, and that was literally a minute ago, because I'm a little foggy this morning because my little family survived moving day yesterday, and it, along with some, thanks, thank you, um, along with some help from our larger family, of which uh, many of you are a part. Uh, most of them are from this community. Here, this is a shot of our U-Haul, not quite. We're just waiting for that. Um, this is uh, the shot that's going to emerge is of our U-Haul in front of our downtown condo. And if you look really close, you'll recognize uh, Michael DeBoer standing in the truck. And he is, he's standing at the ready because here are the obligatory before and after shots. So here's before and after. Yeah, so that's why they call him the Tetris King, Mike DeBoer. Um, I think I just signed him up for a whole bunch more moves. Uh, Zach Bulick, you moved this weekend. Where are you, Zach? Yes. Did, you, did your truck look anything like that? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to say? <laughs> the microphone, and I'm asking you questions in front of everybody. So it's good. It's good to see you. Good to see you. You survived also. Um, there isn't a lot that I, I personally would call enjoyable about the moving process. Um, but we did have some good times yesterday, had some great help, and you got to keep your humor when you're moving. And speaking of that, I came across this image this last week, which I thought was kind of funny. It's the hipster move. Um, and of course, this list is referring to, if you could look at the neighborhoods on the left, to hipsters in New York, but it bears some relevance given the fact that I just moved to Mount Pleasant. And uh, so I appreciate, in particular, all the space allowed for feelings. Moving to a new neighborhood, uh, you notice different things. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was pulling out of our underground parking space in our new uh, place, and it was a clear day, and emerging just in through the alley, and all of a sudden, the North Shore Mountains were there in all their glory, which is a view we didn't have when we were living downtown and facing south. And so um, that was pretty cool to wake up to. Early this morning, it was still dark, and I pulled into that same alleyway, and the first thing I noticed was the Celtic Cross lit up above St. Patrick's Parish. I was like, ooh, I like this. I can get used to this. And last night, Terry and I were uh, sitting eating leftover pizza amid our sea of boxes, and um, we heard the 8, eight o'clock p.m. bells chiming out from Heritage Hall. So I'm grateful to be in our new neighborhood with its new sights and sounds, new habits, new rhythms, and new ways to be shaped by them. And so as we head into our text this morning from Acts chapter 2, we take a look at that which the early church devoted themselves to once they had received the Spirit. It's good to be reminded of the ways in which our everyday practices form us. I love this quote from Tish Harrison Warren. She said, We are shaped every day, whether we know it or not, by practices, rituals and liturgies that make us who we are, we receive these practices, which are often rote, not only from the church or the scriptures, but from the culture, from the air around us. Flannery O'Connor once told a young friend to push as hard as the age that pushes you. 
Warren goes on to note how many Christians seem to think that we push back against the age by believing correctly, getting the right ideas in our heads, having a biblical worldview. Now, theology matters a great deal, of course, but for the most part, you and I are not motivated by our conscious thoughts. The vast majority of what we do is what we could say precognitive, right? Um, when I'm brushing my teeth, when I'm shopping for groceries, when I'm riding on transit, I am not typically thinking about my beliefs. Most of what shapes my life and culture works below the mind, from the gut. It's in our loves. And so today as we continue in the book of Acts, which is all about the things, remember, that Jesus continued to do and to teach, continuing from Luke's gospel, we'll see that the witness of these early followers of Christ bears this out. We are shaped by our, by our practices more than over against our doctrine, our beliefs. So this morning, we're going to look at what happened after the gift of the Holy Spirit was given and received. So our text this morning, if you have a chair Bible close by or your own or an app, uh, feel free to turn to Acts 2. And we're going to pick up kind of in the midst of this epic event that Steph preached about last week. And we will go back and recap and remember what that was all about. But I'm going to offer the text here. Let's read it together. And then I'll uh, offer a prayer and ask for God's help as we continue opening this up together. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call, our Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give, anyone, give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, which is living and active. I thank you for Luke. Thank you for inspiring him, for motivating him to uh, write down the, these things, these stories, these events, these words that were spoken, these things that took place, so that we, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and um, these words handed down through the generations, might receive them today and consider what they might mean afresh, even here and even now. Open our ears, our hearts, our minds to what you have for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, this little section of 10 verses is, is kind of the aftermath of a spirit being poured out on these believers in Jerusalem. So immediate and long-term, kind of two parts, 37 to 41, and then 42 to 47. So we'll take this in two parts. Let's back up to the beginning, and our text begins with these five words, when the people heard this. So who were these people again? Let's recall briefly who, who was there. Uh, verse 5 
back at the beginning of chapter 2, refers to God-fearing Jews. So these were devout people. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost, which took place 50 days after Passover. This was a harvest festival. And later on in the text, Peter addresses them all as fellow Israelites. God-fearing Jews, fellow Israelites, devout people. What did they hear? Well, Peter's speech, which first addressed the phenomena they experienced, uh, there was a sound and a sight and some speaking. So the sound was like a rushing wind. The sight was what looked like flames resting on the heads of those affected. And then there was a sound of speaking. There was speaking in other tongues as these people were enabled by the Spirit. And Peter explained then that what they were experiencing had been anticipated for a long time. This is that, he said, which the prophets told us would happen. And remember, he's talking to fellow Israelites, people who supposedly knew this backstory and yet weren't putting two and two together. After Peter quoted Joel, he began to draw a line between what was happening in that moment, all this wild phenomena, and what was happening, or what had happened, pardon me, to the man from Nazareth called Jesus. It's a brilliant summary, about 15 verses. We're not going to go back to the whole thing, but for time's sake, here's my summary of Peter's summary. He said this, homies, listen up. It's a paraphrase. Um, Jesus was among you. He did a bunch of legit stuff, miraculous stuff, stuff that we knew, know could only happen if the man had been sent by God. Then he was handed over to the religious elite, something God knew would happen, something God let happen, and you killed him. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Death was no match for him. Not many of us saw that coming, but we should have. When you chanted the Psalms in the synagogues, don't you recall the part that said, you will not abandon me to the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Who'd you think David was writing about? Himself? Good try, but no. David died and is very much still dead. Look back at that part in the summary. It's kind of funny when you read it that way. Being a prophet, David knew he was writing about a future time when God's chosen Messiah would be raised to life. And well, that happened. A bunch of us saw it with our own eyes, and now Jesus is with God, reigning from the heavens, the control room of the universe, where he received from the Father the spirit he has now dispensed to you. Once again, David isn't the ruling ascended one. Jesus is. The one who you all killed is master and Messiah, Lord and God. So that's what they heard. How did they respond? I love this phrase. They were cut to the heart. To put it another way, this isn't the kind of response that happens when you and I see a movie that's just kind of okay. We don't get cut to, a heart, cut to the heart by a movie that's just kind of okay. Or a play when someone asks you how it was, you say, ah, it's not too bad. Or you go to a live concert that was maybe a six out of 10. It wasn't terrible, but you weren't moved by it. It's not gonna change your life. So Luke tells us that those who saw the Pentecost event with all this accompanying phenomena and then listened to Peter were penetrated to the core of their being. They were cut to the heart. The idiom in Greek literally means to pierce the heart. And it carries with it an experience of acute emotional distress. And there's an implication of both concern and regret. So we're talking about deep inner awareness, overwhelming somber reflection. It could be, get this, 
that some who were there listening to Peter that day were also part of the same crowd that just a few weeks before were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They were affected to the degree that a question was prompted, a curiosity was provoked that may well result in life change. What's the question? Brothers, what shall we do? So zooming out again, we can all call to mind those six out of 10 cultural events, but what about the ones that made you say, okay, I need to do something about this. This, is, this, is, this has changed me already to this place. What, what should I do? What should I do? I wonder if we could legitimately read, they were cut to the heart as they were convicted by the spirit that fell. What shall we do? In many ways is the question that we ought always to be asking as those who embody a more practice-oriented faith in Jesus. What shall we do? It's a huge ongoing part of what it means to live inside the story that has embraced us. First, to bear witness to what Jesus said and did, to wrestle with it, to understand it as best we can, and then to ask, what shall we do? How shall, the, how shall we then live? What difference ought this to make in my life? So to listen, to remember, and then to imagine. That's the rhythm. That's how we're formed in faith. So how does Peter answer? 38 again. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them. His sermon wasn't done yet. <laughs> he pleaded with them. Luke's like, ah, I can't remember all this. I'm not going to write all this down. Many other words. He said other things. And then he pleaded with them saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a good result. It's a pretty good day. Good numbers. But I'm guessing in a room like this, some of us may not have heard much beyond that very first word, repent. We've all seen the street corner preachers carrying signs. It's a good chance that we're familiar with the t-shirts. And we're also, yeah, like that's, that draws me in. Every time I see someone with that. And then whatever this is. It probably appeared on a t-shirt as well. I'm not certain. Whatever state we happen to be in, though, this, in this place this morning, whether we consider ourselves believers or not, repent is one of those words that, that none of us likes to hear. I resonate with pastor and author Megan Larissa Good. She said, I'd be rich if I had a dollar for every time I heard a Christian whisper in horror about the childhood preacher who used the pulpit to moralize about movies, playing cards, pianos, alcohol, jewelry, or the evils of women in pants. Just let Kathy finish her laugh there. Okay, sorry. You're done? Good. Thank goodness we've moved past the burden of that never-ending guilt, many have said to me. And she goes on to say, you know what? I'm with them on this. Guilt is a notoriously bad motivator. It's more likely to paralyze us than to inspire us to change. And Jesus has revealed that God's primary attitude towards us is not wrath but compassion for our weaknesses, mercy for our mistakes, and patience with our stumbling attempt to learn what is right and good. 
But here's what we tend to forget. That is that the mercies of God, which Scripture tells us are new every morning, like a waterfall that never dries up, are not permission to remain shackled to our worst tendencies. So when we sing the Lord is gracious and compassionate, that's not a reason to stay where we are as we are. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, verse 1, shall we keep sinning so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So this is an attitude that misses the point of grace entirely. Elsewhere in Romans, we read that God's kindness is meant to lead us to what? Repentance. I love Peterson's rendering of that verse, Romans 2, second part of verse 4. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. So I'm still trying to grasp this, that it's because we can be rock-solid confident that the love of God is unconditional and unbreakable that we can also have the courage to look inside with brave honesty and face the shadow parts of ourselves that desperately long for freedom. What am I saying? (laughs) Well, I'm saying we don't need more guilt. We don't need more shame. We don't need more condemnation. What we do need is somehow to reclaim the meaning of repent as a grace-infused invitation to change course. Let me say that again. We need somehow to reclaim the meaning of repent as a grace-infused invitation to change course. Have you ever heard repent as a grace-infused word? New leaf? I don't know. I think it's possible. I think it's what Peter intended. Here's the Greek word, metanoia. It means turn, change your mind, redirect your life. It's what you do when you wake up and you realize the road you're on isn't leading you where you want to go. It's the core of the phrase that we like to say quite a bit. It's one that we've kind of taken on as a bit of a tagline as a church. Be changed and create change. Be changed, create change. Repent and then invite others to do the same. It's essentially what we're saying. And that's the heartbeat of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, the one who said, follow me. The assumption is that the call, of course, or the assumption in that call, of course, is that up to that point, we've been following something else. Instead of the man from Nazareth being our teacher and our rabbi, our coach, showing us how to be truly human, we've been schooled by someone else, something else, usually ourselves. I love Tom Wright's words here. But how do you steer toward Jesus? How does he catch you, stop you, rescue you? Peter and the others are quite clear, and the message of the Christian gospel fans out from this point to all people and all times. You need to turn back. But the way to do that is to become part of the kingdom movement that is identified with Jesus, part of the people who claim his life, death and resurrection as the center and foundation of their own. Continuing, it's a long quote, should have warned you. You need, in other words, to be baptized, to join the company marked out with the sign of the new exodus, coming through the water to leave behind slavery and sin and to find the way to freedom and life. You need to allow Jesus himself to grasp hold of you, to save you from the consequences of the way you were going, forgiveness of sins and to give you new energy to go in the right way instead. That's the gift of the Spirit. 
To do all that is to turn back from the way you're going and to go in the other direction instead. This is what is meant by the word repent. It's a lot in that one word. Notice a few things with me. You need to turn back, but the way to do that is to be part of the kingdom movement identified with Jesus. So in other words, to repent, not just a one-time action. It's not something you do the moment you first invite Jesus into your heart, and then you don't have to think or talk about it anymore. Repentance is a culture that we're meant to inhabit and to embody. It's a pattern of daily living in the Jesus way. And another big word that follows is be baptized. In the quote, uh, N.T. Wright links this image to the first exodus, right? Following Jesus into and through the waters of death and rebirth. And so we leave behind enslavement to sin in our wake, and we're raised with and by him into resurrection life. Um, Okay, taking a risk here. Earlier this week, an image came to mind about what this original scene was like when the Holy Spirit came and then Peter speaks, and I, I haven't honestly decided yet whether it's cheesy, the image that I'm going to share with you, but YOLO. So up to that point, here's what I think it's like. They're kind of like in the stands at the aquarium watching a dolphin show, and it's like a dolphin, or a dolphin training exercise. That's what they do now. It's actually not a show. It's a training exercise. So they're in the front row, and then when the dolphin leaps, they get splashed by the water enough to get pretty soaked. I think that's kind of like being cut to the heart and asking, what shall we do? So a bit of Holy Spirit water, kind of enough to get your interest peaked. And when Peter says, repent and be baptized, that's like the head trainer at the aquarium saying, does anyone actually want to swim with the dolphins? And then everyone watching the dolphins said to each other, is he serious right now? Because I'm in. And then they jump in the tank before anyone can change their mind. So in other words, repent and be baptized is not something to cower away from in fear. It's good news. And it must have sounded like good news and felt like good news. Why else would 3,000 people sign up on the spot? One quick note, verse 40. What are the people inviting to save them, being invited to save themselves from? He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. In other words, this is salvation from yourselves, from the natural consequences of your actions, or as Tom Wright put it, the way you were going. Peter does not say... Save yourselves from a God who is infinitely cruel, and essentially he's intent on punishing you. How does John put it in his gospel? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save, save the world through him. Once again, guilt, fear are terrible motivators. Peter is heralding good news. Now, while we're talking about baptism... I need to ask, does anyone want to be baptized a bit later this fall? You can even put up your hand right now. It's not a rhetorical question. Yes? Awesome. Couple. So you can join uh, if you'd like to. Let's talk about this later. November 24 is our next Baptism Sunday. One person's already committed into the addition to the two of you. And let's chat later. We have room for more. We've booked the tank that we borrowed from our sister church. And it's going to be over here in this corner where the speakers are. And... Um, it's going to be warm water. And so if you're mildly curious, if you're feeling drawn to it, if you almost put up your hand and you have questions about it, or you're absolutely ready to go, I would love to chat with you. Put it on your calendar. November 24, that's when it's going to be happening here again. So we, the, the text raised the, the idea. So I'm just, I'd have to talk about it. 
Okay, little summary of where we've been before, and then we're going to move into little part two here. So the initial response of those witnessing the Pentecost event, this indiscriminate gift of the Spirit, as well as the recounting of the Jesus story, was deep conviction. That was the result. They were cut to the heart. The people knew they needed to do something. And so when they asked, Peter confirmed their inclinations with a call to repentance, to baptism, to join the movement. So this was an invitation that sounded like good news, and it was indeed received as good news by many. About 3,000 were baptized, and so the number of those following the way of Jesus in Jerusalem grew significantly. What do they do next? Verse 42 to 47, once more. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Lance has talked about this before, but I wanted to come back to it. Any Beck fans out there? Fans of the artist Beck? If so, you're probably likely to know about his 2012 collection called Song Reader. Song Reader was originally released as 20 individual pieces of sheet music. So not a streaming sort of set of songs, but here, here's some music. 20 individual pieces of sheet music offered by the artist in the hopes that enterprising musicians would record their own version and upload their songs. There was a website, songreader.net. So if you want to hear, do we? We do. Or don't act like your heart isn't hard. Bringing them to life depends on you. There were some responses to the project that were, as you might expect, pretty varied. Maybe, maybe even characteristic of the responses in the room right now. If you're hearing about this for the first time, there's some criticism. Like, gimmick, guys releasing songs and not even bothering to record them himself. Like, lazy. Here, have some music. Call that an album. There was disappointment. Um, people just kind of, well, I guess I'll never hear it. Um, and then there was participation. Um, interestingly enough, scores of people um, took Beck up on his offer. And originally, there was a place, as I mentioned, to upload the interpretations online. One article in The Atlantic said the performances range from grainy one-person recordings to polished multi-instrument affairs turned into music videos. Some faithfully follow the sheet music, some add embellishments, and others pare it down to just chords and vocals. The styles, acoustic, classical, retro, rock, even dubstep said The Atlantic. 2014, a couple years later, after the sheet music version of Song Reader came out, Beck took 20 of those submissions and released it as a compilation recording. So you can actually go onto Spotify or wherever now and, uh, and look it up, and you can hear it. It's a various artists kind of project. The only way to hear the music is to play the music. The only way to hear it is to play it. There's so many parallels here to being the church. We have our critics to be sure, and there always seems to be some disappointment at some level. Yet despite all of that, there's participation. There's activity. People are playing the music. They're jumping into the tank. As we look at this well-known passage at the close of Act Two, 
it's important, of course, not to idealize the early church in a way that assumes they had it all together, they were always killing it. We will get to some rough patches in due course if you stick with this series. But at the same time, while we avoid the extreme of idealization, this text, these six verses I suggest are worth coming back to as a kind of true north, as a picture of what participation in an authentic community of Christ followers ought to look like. It's a picture that often serves as a corrective for the many ways we tend to veer off course. Love this quote. We've been here before too, but I want to share it again. Richard Halverson said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women who centered their lives on the living Christ. They had a personal relationship with the Lord. It transformed them and the world around them. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Later, it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. Finally, it moved to the United States, where it became an enterprise. We've got far too many churches and so few fellowships. A fellowship, a repentant, baptized, like-minded group oriented around a person. They devoted themselves. Their repentance gave way to devotion. Devotion to what? 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this verse is often pulled out and seen as laying down the four essential marks of the church. Things that any and every fellowship gathered around the way ought to be participating in. These four things go together, and you you can't separate them or leave one out without doing damage to the whole thing. So imagine with me for just a few moments what it would be like to relegate any one of these practices to the realm of optional instead of essential. When we don't give attention to teaching and to consistent lifelong learning and growing up into maturity in Christ, we easily drift into the mindset of the prevailing culture. We end up being shaped by whatever social pressures are the most persuasive or attractive, and Jesus ceases to become a visible or tangible influence on our lives. When we overlook the common life of Jesus' family, which Luke calls fellowship, which is a word meaning more than friendship, but not less. When we give that up, we become isolated, we become separate and siloed. And friends, you know as well as I do that sustaining a faith that is alive and active is a really hard thing to do on your own. It's borderline impossible. Because practicing the way of Jesus is not meant to be a solo activity. Never was, never will be. The breaking of bread, this was the early Christian term for the simple meal that continually drew them back in their memory to the upper room in remembrance of Jesus. So if we no longer share in the table the practice of what the, God's hospitality, then we fail to raise the banner that says the death and resurrection of Jesus are at the center of everything. It's as though we're jumping into a different story entirely if we remove that. And if we were to do all of those things but leave out prayer... And we'd be forgetting that apprentices of Jesus are meant to be heaven and earth people. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. I love how Tom Wright frames this thought. Prayer makes no sense whatever. Unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together. And we can share in that already. Teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. 
These were the essential marks of practice for the early followers of Christ. This stuff wasn't optional then. I want to suggest it's still not optional now. Now, if you happen to be someone who has spent a lot of time in church, maybe you grew up in the church, um, you might be looking at this list and kind of thinking, this stuff's kind of boring, isn't it? So ordinary. And that's what these people devoted themselves to. I hear you, and I've been that person. I am that person more frequently than I care to admit. But when I take a step back and try to imagine a world without these things, I realize I wouldn't want to live in that kind of world. I think of the incredible spiritual teaching I have received throughout my life from professors, from fellow students alike in other churches, in this church, through books, through podcasts, through my spiritual directors. When you and I humbly and regularly sit at the feet of others who are seeking to practice the way of Jesus, we open ourselves to the possibility of looking a little more like Jesus ourselves. I think of the opportunities I've had to experience the common life built around shared belief in Jesus at camps, in youth groups, in educational settings, in various groups here at Artisan. When you and I are willing to trade our independence for interdependence and to embrace the messiness that comes with a shared life, we begin to see more clearly that we were not designed to do life alone or to practice the way of Jesus alone. I think of what it's meant to be invited to the Lord's table again and again and again and to be reminded of the story I'm living in, to be hosted by Jesus himself, to be assured that I have a place at his table no matter what. So when we come together as we are, not as we think we should be, in the name of Christ to break bread, we participate in presence, not just remembrance. The bread and wine don't just help us look back at what Jesus did. They help us get swept up in what he's doing now, every day, every moment, and in every place. Prayer, I, I think of the many ways prayer has caused me to be reoriented toward a God-centered life. In solitude, in groups, on retreat, here within the gathered community. Is all that stuff boring? Possibly but not if you've been living in a world without these things. And then you find yourself immersed in it for the first time. Back in this original context, Luke says, everyone was filled with awe. And this was an awe that only expanded and grew as people witnessed the power of the Spirit at work through the apostles as it had been with Jesus, healing, changing people's lives. These were the things the early believers devoted themselves to. I love breaking apart the word devoted. I think you might enjoy this too. Devoted, the word is proskriterio. Uh, and a few meanings, to stay by, to remain in the same place. To persist at. If you're devoted to something, you keep going, you continue in spite of difficulty or opposition or failure or disappointment that I mentioned earlier. Devoted is to remain with, to continue to exist alongside one another, especially when others have ceased. Devoted means to give attention, the giving of awareness, of noticing. To be devoted is to attach oneself to, to the giving of one's very self, to a community, to a practice. 
I love the word devoted. I'm, I'm interested in reclaiming it in simple, non-heroic, yet very intentional ways. Anyone with me on that? It's a good word. I want to keep building a culture that is characterized by repentance first, grace-infused invitation, by devotion, and by practice. There's a few massive things raised in the last few verses here. We don't have time for part three. But what will be the place of signs and wonders in our community? I need to ask. What will be the place of sacrificial generosity as we keep learning why we're in this neighborhood and any other neighborhood that we happen to dwell in, in our own neighborhoods? What will be the place of meals, of gladness, of intentionality, and of praise? The only way to hear the music is to play the music. Now notice the last phrase. God is the one who gets credited for growing them in number. They weren't, doesn't say, devoted to evangelism. And yet, evangelism happened. In the truest sense of the word, people couldn't help but be good newsed. Yep. Just made that a verb. They couldn't help but be good newsed by these spirit-filled, devoted followers of Jesus. And God added to their number. So much in this text, but I'm going to trust the spirit that um, whatever is meant to be sort of stuck with you, it will be. One, I want to have a focused invitation here to, to cap things off, an invitation to memory and imagination. I was reading a book this last week called Aaron, uh, called The Eternal Current, written by Aaron Nyquist. Uh, Aaron's wife, Shauna, is also an author, and she's written some incredible stuff. But I want to invite us to reflect on two invitations, and I see these arising from our text this morning. Essentially this, an invitation to memory and imagination memory and imagination. In all these practices, we see the early church devoting themselves to, you can identify a movement backward and a movement forward. And so in this book, The Eternal Current, Nyquist says, without memory, we pull up anchor and drift with the winds of the moment. We refuse to learn from those who came before us and we repeat the same mistakes. So without memory, we're caught up in the tyranny of the moment and we can't find the wisdom and tools to move past it. Do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus. We need memory to anchor us in what's always been true. But memory isn't enough. It's not enough. We also need imagination. Without imagination, we freeze in time in an idealized past, and we protect our homeland at all costs. Without imagination, all we can see is what we've already seen. We're merely a continuation of yesterday which is a lot like the definition of despair, the belief that tomorrow can only be an extension of today. In the Broadway musical Hamilton, one of the lead characters, Aaron Burr, wrestles with the disappointment of a life that's just failed to meet his expectations. He follows the rules, he plays it safe, but Burr keeps losing out to Alexander Hamilton, who neither obeys the rules nor plays the game. There's a song called Wait For It, and in that song, we see regret and resentment beginning to surface as Aaron Burr sings about his highly respected parents leaving him nothing but a legacy to protect. There are few things more crushing to kids than to feel that the purpose of their lives is just to protect someone's legacy. Nyquist tells the story how as an eight-year-old, 
he's hanging out with his dad in their backyard and he proudly announces, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. More than 30 years later, he writes, I can still see the loving way he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye as he replied, Aaron, I hope you become 10 times the person I am. That's a legacy. Without imagination, our faith is merely a legacy to protect. Nyquist says, what if God's work in our past is not a legacy to protect so much as a springboard to launch us into the continuing story of God? There is profound continuation, of course, as we stand on the shoulders of giants building on where we've been. But there's also wild and uncharted territory ahead for every one of us. I want to suggest that legacy protection is not the dynamic we see at work in Acts. So two quick questions to prompt some tangible ways we might give ourselves to the practices of memory and imagination. So you might want to consider this. What's one practice of memory that can anchor you to the great story of God throughout history? How can you learn from the wisdom of those who swam with God before you? So some ideas to read classic Christian books. Dead authors, right? Not the ones that are still living. Classic. Study church history or theology. Practice the daily office. I don't know if we have some right now, but I think we should have some copies of the daily office at the info desk. If not, we're going to get some more. Join our table group this fall on scripture. Invite an older Christ follower to have lunch with you and just ask them some of their stories, what they could learn, what, we, what you could learn from them. Second question, what's one practice of imagination that will open you to the new things God wants to do in and through you? How can you clear space and make freedom for new life to be born? Here's where you can read some Christian books by people who are still living. So new Christian books. If you need recommendations, ask. Experiment with fresh spiritual practices or even make new ones. Explore different ways to pray. Learn about Jesus through someone from another Christian tradition or even from another faith. Start something that didn't previously exist. And of course, with any new practice, the recommendation is for do it for 30 days with as much regularity as you can. Submit to one practice of memory one practice of imagination, see what the Spirit does in you. Don't try to boil the ocean. Don't do everything at once. Just take the next step with God and commit to it with regularity for a set period of time. Let's see what God does. If you're feeling drawn into that, invited into it, I encourage you. Let's swap stories. Let's have some silence, and let's be with the Spirit in this invitation, with this text, whatever has stuck with us, and have a bit of silence, and then I'll invite us to the table.